Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest is Charles H. Martin, PhD. He's a chief scientist at Calculation Consulting. We'll be talking about the machine learning and AI expert work that they do. So, Charles, thanks for coming. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So, tell me, um, you know, a little bit more specifically, what's the premise of uh, of your company and what do you guys do? Gotcha. Well, we're specialists in AI and machine learning. We're a boutique consultancy. And what we specialize in is translating research into products. So, you know, so, you know, sometimes PhDs get a negative rap because they think all these guys do is research, you know, in the academic world. But, mm. you know, what yeah. we do, what I've been doing for at least 15 years or more in Silicon Valley, is taking state-of-the-art research in machine learning and AI and translating it into products for companies. So these have included companies okay. like eBay, um, BlackRock, you know, Google, these kinds of things. So what's, you know, because you're on the inside, what are some examples of AI that's being used out there that people may not even be aware of, but that you're like super impressed with and maybe you've even worked on? Well, I think one of the really useful things we do is semantic search and matching. And this is a technology that I think a lot of people need and they just don't really have access to it. Uh, if you buy a product off the shelf, you're going to get some, you're going to get something in terms of your search product, which is, you know, maybe what was state of the art 15, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, the kind of stuff I was re when I was a subject matter expert in machine learning and eBay that we were looking at 10 years ago. And the kind of things you can do today are really new. You can really leverage the natural language processing research coming out of places like Google and OpenAI and build some very sophisticated natural language processing tools for doing semantic search and matching. Um, a good example is Google recently announced a technology called TensorHub. And I had a, a client that needed us to build a, um, a sentence similarity matching service. They, they were doing something and need to know when one query they were implementing is similar to something else. And I was able to put a prototype together in just a couple days that was production quality. So I think yeah, the technology like AI is pretty was, um, Yeah, It seems like AI was sleeping for a long time. And all of a sudden, the past two years, it's woken up and it's advancing quick. Why do you think that's happened and what made it happen? So I worked on AI in the 90s. And there were a number of products like Hotfield Nets, Associative Memories, and things like convolutional nets for simple OCR. And there were products like this in production, but they were very niche and really only accessible to very, very large companies that were doing very specialized things. And then the sort of AI research sort of died. Um, you know, basically, funding dried up is what happened. The, the Cold War ended. I was in a theoretical physics group. And said, look, it, funding is ending. We're not really making a lot of progress here. We're going to kind of, and, and we went through some of this AI winter. And then about 10 years ago, uh, the system called Kaggle was announced, and researchers in Toronto started, you know, guys who were doing AI started submitting their AI projects to Kaggle, and they were competing in AI research, and this stuff started to find out it really worked. And it turns out that there were a small group of researchers who had continued to pursue AI research from the early 90s. They'd spent you know, the last 10, 15 years working on it, made a lot of progress. And then Google came in and acquired a, a company, well, actually I should say Peter Thiel and Elon Musk 
made some investments in a company called DeepMind, and they have just made tremendous advances in terms of taking what was academic research and turning it into production quality tools that people can use. So, okay. so I think in the past you know, five years or so, I mean, Google, Facebook, Amazon, they've put thousands of engineers on this project to develop the, and they have developed these open source tools and made them widely available to the, uh, to the business community. So now engineers and developers can develop products very, very quickly. Things that were, you know, something that would take six or eight weeks to do 10 years ago, I could do it a couple days. And something that would take three months to do now would have, would have been like, you know, a five-year research project five years ago. Oh, wow. So um, TensorFlow, what, uh, TensorHub or TensorFlow is a product from Google that allows people to use their existing neural networks and other stuff to run simulations. Any other resources? And then I want to ask you about the data side. You know, the, the neural networks or the um, AI engines are great, but if you don't have data, you know, then what do you do? So I'm sure there's data repositories now too, right? I think a lot of people think about AI as if I'm going to build a model and I'm going to train this model and I'm going to put it in production. And, and they think of it like uh, that's how a lot of people sell it. There are a lot of other tool things you can do with AI that don't really require that level of sophistication. For example, there are now a lot of technologies, a lot of neural networks in particular, both in TensorFlow, uh, Facebook's uh, product, PyTorch, that have been pre-trained. Okay. So if I hmm. want to build a system, say, to count the number of cars on a road, you know, I mean, I could go to Amazon, I could use the Amazon recognition APIs, I could just use an API, or I could get a version of one of these pre-trained visual recognition systems, download it, and then I could either use it right off the shelf or I could fine-tune it to my data set. So that's the, that's the approach we take. You know, we don't, we're not trying to design giant neural networks that would require $50,000 of GPU time to train. What we do is we take existing neural networks that have already been pre-trained and either use them out of the box or we fine-tune them on the customer data. And, and that's really the key to making this stuff work in production. And I think for the past three or four years or so, this has become very popular in object recognition. So I have, for example, a, a friend of mine, he's helping him put together a company. They want to do OCR and license plates of cars. So he's got you know, 50,000 images of license plates of cars. And you know, what we want to do is take one of these existing off-the-shelf tools and just tune it a little bit so it works on his data set. Now, within the past six months, literally the past six months, it's starting to become possible to do this with natural language processing. So there, there's, uh, there's TensorFlow, there's Google's tools, there's the OpenAI project, there's the Allen Institute for NLP. Uh, many of these are the three, the three big ones that have released Oh, oh, excuse me, and fourth, right across, of course, I'm looking right out the window out them here in San Francisco. There's Fast AI over at um, University of San Francisco. And these groups have produced open source tools for natural language processing. I think you could build very, very sophisticated tools. And again, this is stuff that six months ago would have been thought to have been possible. So there's, there's oh, really wow. a lot of advances. And so I, I would really say with, with clients, you know, we don't recommend building neural networks from scratch unless they're very small and you're just trying to do some, some small thing, you know, what we recommend doing is taking one of these off-the-shelf components and fine-tuning them. And, and the key is knowing how to run them in production. You know, how, how do you run the out, you know, you want to get this thing to run on, you have, say, a million queries coming in every day to your system. Or, you know, you need to get this thing to run in performance at load uh, in a production environment. And making that work is, is a bit of a challenge if you don't know what the existing tools look like and how to assemble all that. So that's where we really specialize in. What if um, 
you know, I can see with natural language processing, the data set already is kind of enormous. You know, what, what if, um, I don't know, let's say, uh, could I use a facial recognition database of faces and, you know, I could distinguish the nose from the ear. Uh, could I take that data and then use it to train uh, artificial neural network that was similar where I wanted to measure, I don't know, like shoulder width or something or hip width? Can you do stuff like that with the existing libraries out there? It, it's kind of like that, right? So what you might want to do is, you know, you might have, may, maybe you're trying to, de to detect a certain kind of brand of car, a certain type of, uh, some, something very specific, uh, you know, like, like this, you know, something about the, like what exactly is the brand or you're trying to determine whether there's some damage on the car, whether it's, you know, something like this. And, you know, what you want to do is you want to take an existing database of images of cars and then you want to fine tune it on the specific thing you're looking for within that within that context. The, the key to getting this to work is really understanding what the existing systems can do and how different your data is. And and this is really the hmm. key to really having the you know really having familiarity with what the different object detection systems can do. Uh, there's there's object classification. There's object segmentation. Here, here's an example. I saw this today. Someone is trying to classify rooftops. So they want to count like the amount of rooftops in the city for whatever reason. I can't okay. remember what they have. You know, rooftops. Are, and so, you know, that, that's a few, which you have, you know, you, it's an object segmentation problem. You have an, an, an image coming from a satellite. You want to compute the rooftop. Well, you know, you don't really need it to be very high resolution. You just need to know this is a roof or it's not a roof. And so you can, so that's kind of like a very crude level problem. And so you can do that. You can detect this is a building. Here's the roof. And then you can get the capture of the roof. We, we actually, I'll give you an example of why that might be interesting. We had a client come to us who's a construction company, and they wanted to do things like figure out how much <clears throat> pavement do you need for parking lots. And they, they, this is like civil engineering. So you imagine if you had a large okay. amount of, you know, if you had a, very, a large number of satellite images, you could figure out, you know, how much, how much is there actually road? Where is there a parking lot? How big is the parking lot versus where the building is? And this can right. all be done automatically. So if you have to analyze, you know, in a large city, in this case, they were doing something like hurricane reconstruction. So they wanted to look across large paths of images and just try to figure out what's there. And I think that's a good example of where this technology would be useful because, you know, it's, you know you're, you're trying to do something that's fairly low resolution, pretty simple. But right now you're doing it by hand with people and it's very expensive. So that's a good okay. So uh, just for an example, what would be involved in doing something like that? You'd want to do what, I guess, is it called edge detection or object recognition? Like what are the, uh, you know, well, some the of the way things we, that would be we, involved in this? We work in three phases. So the first phase we do with any client is a scoping phase. So we try to figure out, is the project viable? So you have to look at the, you know, what is the problem you're trying to solve and what has been done before, which is similar to it. And then you have to figure out, you know, can, can I use the existing neural networks, pre-trained neural networks, to make progress in this problem? So in, in this case, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example of this flushed out. And they, one of the examples we're looking at uh, was doing, um, you know, they, they wanted to look at telephone poles. So the telephone pole example is actually where it started. So they wanted to go, can we recognize telephone poles from images? Because what would happen is the okay. hurricane would come to Florida, it would knock down all the telephone poles, and they wanted to know, does this telephone pole have a transformer or not have a transformer? And I said, you know, we were on the call. This, this is literally how it went. I was on the call with the client for about two hours. And, you know, why don't we just do it right now? Load up Google's open source image recognition system. 
Let's go on the internet and get some pictures of telephone poles. Let's put them in to Google system and let's see if Google can figure out if there's a transformer or there's not a transformer on this telephone pole. And so I just walked them, you know, I just walked them through it on the call. Let's just build the prototype right now. So we built the prototype two hours after the call's over. They had existing prototype. They took it to senior management and the project was funded. That's so amazing. you, you, you want to, so a lot, a lot of times in industry, people spend a lot of time planning and, you know, having a lot of meetings and, you know, it's trying to, you know, you've got to just get your feet wet. You got to jump in the water. You want to know how to swim. You got to jump in the water. So you've got to figure out, here's my data. Here are the existing tools that exist right now. Get those tools up and running, put your data into them and see what it can do. Yeah. And you have, and you have to get an idea. Look, you, you have to do in physics. We call this the back of the envelope calculation in physics. And I work on the atom bomb. I worked at the Institute Fermi Institute where the bomb was invented. A very famous story. I'll reconfirm it. Rico Fermi, hmm. uh, the super genius who, uh, the super genius who uh, invented the atom bomb. You know, he would be able to solve a problem by just getting the back of an envelope. He would say literally had all these envelopes that they would send messages to each other in the institute you know, but, <laughs> you know, before email. They had these large manila envelopes and he was famous for being able to solve any problem in the back of an envelope. They actually, when you do a, wow. when you go to take physics in school, they, they have a class called back of the envelope calculations. You learn how to solve problems quickly, how to get, how to get a quick estimate of a problem. So your goal in any AI project is to estimate as quickly as possible, whether it's viable or not. And so you have to do this in, in the case with edge detection. Yeah, it'd be the same thing. You'd want to get some images, put it into the existing edge detector, and, and just figure out, is this thing even viable? Does it make sense or does it not make sense? So the example is we had a case where then after we did this project, they then wanted to do everything using LIDAR data. I said, no, 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 no. LIDAR data is not images. What works for images does not work for LIDAR data. And there do not exist. You know, right. it's a, so you, you have to understand the way, you know, sometimes the way people think in business, well, why can't you do it on this is an image? That's an image. What's the difference? Again, no, no, no. It's completely different. It's, it's, this is an extremely technical field. So you can't come to me and say, oh, we built a prototype using images from cameras. And now we want to put into production, a, you know, a system that uses LIDAR data images. But, you know, when you work in industry, people ask you things. They ask you to do things like this. And you're like, oh, boy. So. You have to know, you have to sort of flush out what's doable. And so that was something you have to know immediately. Well, you want to do LIDAR. Well, now we've got to figure out, you know, does there exist a LIDAR system that can do object detection? Or, or, or maybe you want to do object segmentation. So it's very important to sort of get these basic things flushed out at the beginning. Uh, and, and, and then you can begin. Then, then the next phase of this is a research phase. You know, we, you know, three months or so, you have to research whether what you want to do, you know, can you actually build a working prototype? And that, that is something that a lot of clients, a lot of customers in the space really are not prepared for. You know, a lot of businesses, when they think about doing innovation, they think about bringing on a pilot. I want to take this technology. I have a pilot that some startup has built. I want to pilot this technology in my existing company and see what it does. That's how a lot of companies right. think about innovation. Well, we do, of course, we can do that for you. But what I'm talking about from going from research to development means we're not going to, we're going to build the pilot. We're going to construct the pilot internally. And that means you have to take some risk. You're going to have to decide, okay, I'm, I need to try to take the existing algorithms and retrain some neural network or fine tune it and try to get it working on our existing system so that it will, you know, in the next phase, it will become the product that we release. And, and that's really the key to realizing that that research phase that you have to go through, the pre-product phase, where you go from research to development, that research phase 
might take anywhere from three months to 18 months, depending on, you know, how complex it is, what you're trying to do, what the marketplace is for what you're doing. If you're, you know, if you're trying to solve a problem that's going to make 20 or $30 million in revenue, you know, spending six to eight weeks on it probably isn't enough. You, you yeah, need to figure sense. out how, no, but, you know, but, but, you know, a lot of big companies have a problem with this. Because you, if you think about how people are, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I have a question. Um, sure. You know, for small projects, I've gone to Google and tried to use TensorFlow and, you know, some of these other things. And maybe the result wasn't great. But in this environment where things are changing so fast, if I wait six months and I go back, is it pretty likely I'm going to get a much better result because things are changing so fast or it's not that fast? What, what I would say is that, and we advise when we're advising startups, focus on your product line. Focus on product market fit. Because, yes, six months from now, all the technology you're using could be completely commoditized or disappear. So if you build something now with Tensor, it's TensorFlow and you try to build a model and you get something kind of working and you can get it into production and you begin showing that it's useful, chances are six months from now, yeah, there may be some completely new technology that's much, much better. You know, you're going to pick one neural network and you think you've got this really great neural network. And six months from now, someone's going to have a new neural network, which has, you know, five, six, 10% more accuracy. And, you know, you don't want to build a business around, oh, I've got this magical neural network that can solve this problem. You know, you, you should anticipate right. that, that it's going to be commoditized. Absolutely. No, no, I'm, I'm saying if I have a problem that a neural network could solve, and right now if I go to the, you know, TensorFlow or wherever, and it just doesn't work well enough, you know, let's say I'm trying to use NLP for something, and it's just not working out right now. You know, it, it sounds like there's a good chance if I just wait a few months and go back, the technology will be so much better that it'll work better for me at that point. I, actually, I, I can give a really specific answer to this, which okay. is, is a little more subtle. When you build a model for something and you put it in production, you should, that model, when you're in the laboratory and you're building it, it should be able to make predictions about something. And that may not even be a neural network. It may be some simple semantic analysis, latent semantic analysis, or some simple SVM that, you know, sort of was really hard to do 10 years ago. You build a model, you put it in production, and then you measure how well it works. You should be able to correlate how well the model did in tests versus how well it does in the real world. That is, you should be able to solve what we call in finance, we call this the attribution problem. You should be able to attribute the revenue you generate or the margin you lost or the efficiency you gained by how well the model was predicted to do. Now, maybe you're only going to get a 5% increase in efficiency. But, you know, for some companies, 5% could be, uh, uh, could be a game changer. If you lower your margins by 5%, that's huge. So, so the, the key here is that you want to be able to do that. Now, if you can't do that, if you don't have any idea, if you put your model into production and you don't have any idea why it works or whether it's working or it's not working, then you're going to have a really hard time moving on to the next phase. And, and we have this problem. I have this problem with clients. You know, I work with their staff, you know, that they build a model, they put it into production, it does something, they tell me it works, they tell me it doesn't work. So, well, what did you do in test? You know, what, what, where did it work and where did it fail? And if you make an improvement, can you show that when I make the improvement in the laboratory, can you predict that you're going to see that improvement in production? And if not, why not? And I think that's what you need to do. Uh, and, and it's that level of subtlety that you have to have a really good connection between what's going on in your test environment when you build the model and what's going on in your production environment. Okay, makes sense. 
So this is the so, consulting that you do is to help companies use the models that are out there properly and not get false positives or false negatives or think that it doesn't work for them when it actually could. Right, right. So what I try to do is help them develop these models, get these models into production, measure how well the model is doing, and then make improvements. Let, let me give you a really specific example. I had a client, it was a computational advertising client, and they had models in production that would predict what people click on, right? When you're running ads, you run ads on websites, and you want to predict what, how, many time, how many views you're going to get, and you want to right. predict how many clicks you're going to get. So, you know, in, in the laboratory, maybe I, I see a 40%. When we did this, we got like a 30% boost in revenue in a month. So it was just, it was just skyrocketed. Boom. You put the thing into production, revenue goes up 30%. That pays my fee for the whole year. So then six months, then, you know, then you've got to make improvements. All right. So one of the things they, they didn't understand is that, well, they were measuring the returns every week. Every week we want to put a model in production and we want to see how well it does. Okay, that, that sounds ambitious, but you're not Google. You don't have that, you don't have that much return. So, it, it, so the problem is that, I mean, it's kind of like running a restaurant and saying, well, I'm going to run a special every, a, a new special every week and I want to see how many times uh, people like the special. But if nobody's well, coming to your restaurant, data. they may not yeah, be enough scale have, in order to get a signal. That's right. That's right. You may, you know, if you're running a, if you're running a, you may need to run that thing um, twenty or thirty times. To- you know, you may need to run it for five or six weeks, on and off, on and off. You know, every other week you're running that particular special, and then over the course of three months, you know whether people like it or not. Right, so, so here's an interesting question. Then, what do you do with companies that just have low volume of whatever it is they're trying to test? How can you piggyback on high volume type results to help low volume businesses? Well, look, you know, we, we were able to get a boost in production, a 30% boost in revenue within a month, you know, working closely with the CTO. We actually wrote all the code in Ruby because <laughs> their system was written in Ruby. So we wrote it all in Ruby. Again, I built the whole system in Ruby. And then we started, you know, productionalizing it, right? Once we showed we could get revenue, then we moved everything to Spark after we did the prototyping. The, the challenge is, is knowing, are you actually measuring what you think you're measuring? So in this case, no, it's, it's very hard to, to take. It's very easy to go from zero to one. If you're not doing anything and you've collected the data, we can give you a model that will work pretty well. To go to the next phase takes a lot of work, and you have to be careful in how you design your experiments. And this, this is the key, is designing good experiments that, can le- that are appropriate for the amount of data that you have. You know, you may not need, a, you may not be able to leverage a particularly sophisticated model if that model, if you don't have enough data to train that model. So you may need to just do something very simple and you've got to sort of figure out what, you know, so not, not every company is ready to run a neural network with 100 million parameters. You may, you may be better off just running a simpler machine learning model or maybe a very small neural network, maybe the right solution for you. Uh, I'll give you an example of how we showed this because this was this was a difficult conversation to have. And so, you know, when you're working with a client, you ask, how can I show the client that doing tests every week is not the right thing to do? Well, here's the solution we came up with. Well, we we decided to run the model in production twice. We run we run a duplicate of the model, the exact same model. We make a copy of it. We put half the traffic to one copy and half the traffic to another copy. So what happens? Well, then you measure how much revenue boost you get. Uh, on each model, and you and you look at the fluctuations, and what you find out is that you know you, the the amount of fluctuation in your data, the number of clicks you get per day, is so different 
uh, is, is more different day to day or on average than you would see across the two models. So in other words, you know, you okay. maybe you see 100 clicks in one model and 150 clicks in the other model. And it's it just you realize then they realized, oh, if I the, the, running the data for one week just isn't enough, you're not getting enough good statistics. So you have to run it longer. You just you can't move that quickly. You need to run. The, and the problem in this case was that, well, you know, when you're running an advertising company, you know, every month you get new advertisers coming in. And so you're showing new ads every month. And so. You know, you have to you had to use a simpler model and not try to put things into production so quickly and think more carefully about how you're measuring your results. And and that that's the reality of how these systems work. Okay. I got it. So uh I don't know if you could talk about eBay and you work for them, but can you give a couple more specific examples of you know how you use machine learning and what did it tell you to do and what the outcomes were? You know, whatever ones you can talk about. Sure. I mean, eBay was 10 years ago. So whatever we were doing there is so out of date that, yeah, we were do I was, I've been doing machine learning and AI in the Valley for over, you know, almost 20 years. So we were looking at eBay, you know, the scale at which eBay was at, we were looking at ways to improve the search efficiency on eBay using machine learning 10 years ago. And I think I may have been the first one in the industry to pioneer the use of uh, structural SVMs uh, in a search engine. And so we were able to take one of their off the, sh uh, the side, they had a system called sh uh, shopping, a small part of the shopping engine that they had. Of course, I mean, excuse me, the whole thing is a shopping engine. They had a particular site called shopping.com, which was a smaller version of eBay. And they would list, they, they would put eBay listings on the main, excuse me, they would put shopping.com listings on the main eBay sites. And what we wanted to do is show that we can improve the click-through rates on the shopping.com listings. And so we used an SVM to do this. And I was able to show that by doing this, we could increase the click-through efficiency by 15%. So you think about that for a minute, the scale at which eBay is at. Imagine being able to increase the number of clicks you get by 15% using machine learning. Now, at the time, nobody in the industry was doing this. I mean, I, I went and I gave a talk at Yahoo yeah. Research about this. The talk is online. I couldn't get the Yahoo guys through the first slide of the talk. It was, I mean, it was an incredible, uh, I, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. You can see why Yahoo, you know, like like what happened to them as a company when you go and talk to their research team, you see what it was like. You know, you know, they were just not a, yeah, um, a healthy company. eBay was right. a very healthy company. Yeah, it's just a valley, you know. Companies come, companies go. Yahoo was once a big company. Now Google's a big company. It's just how it goes. Right. You know? It's just. But you know, we were at the time at eBay, we were the first ones to do this. We actually did the SVM, and then we built another system called RankNet, which was a neural network. So we had neural networks doing search relevance at eBay 10 years ago. And, you know, the, the thing is that it was a very, very long project. I mean, that was a complicated project that required several PhDs and a lot of staff and a lot of time to do it. But it was possible because eBay had the resources and the scale. And they were using this technology for other things. For example, I had come out of a group that had built, I, I had designed as, I was a subject, I was a consultant and subject matter expert at eBay on machine learning. So we had started by building uh, customer support tools using SVMs to classify their emails and route emails. And by showing that that worked in customer support, we then said, well, let's try to do this in search. And it worked amazingly well in search as well. And then that eventually became Aardvark. You know, I went and left eBay and I joined Aardvark and hmm. having done, you know, I, I, I didn't take it, you know, I, I knew how all these algorithms worked and knowing how all these algorithms work, we built Aardvark and that got acquired by Google. And that was 10 years ago. So that was the kind of, and to do that, you know, making that work required being able to go through the academic literature, figure out what worked and what didn't, 
and then find some open source tool that you could productionalize. And, that, and that's how I did it. There was a, there were these the at that time there was no Python code, Scikit-Learn did not exist. There were no there was obviously no TensorFlow. So you had to go to some academic lab. You had to download their code. You had to you had to test it. You know this is basically running on the command line in Unix. You know, and then you figure out, oh, this thing seems to work. Why don't we see if we can productionalize it? Well, you know, productionalizing command line code isn't so easy, but you can do it. You know, you have to write, we, in, in Artwork, for example, we write wrapper code around it in Ruby, and then eventually you can bind the code into Ruby using, um, you know, some you know, Ruby C libraries. And this is eventually what happened with Python, is that eventually, Py, you know, the Ruby, guys, this, the Ruby guys were just not up to doing machine learning and AI. It, it just wasn't in their DNA. They, they you know, they're smart guys, but it's just not, it's not their thing. You know, they, they didn't do, they were not mathematicians and scientists. So eventually it became, I said, you know, doing this in Ruby is never going to work because it's just the culture. Ruby, as a language, Ruby is fine. The technology is fine. Yeah. But as a culture, the Ruby culture, the Ruby on Rails culture would never support this. And of course, Ruby, you know, Ruby is now no longer the dominant language. Now Python is. And what happened was that eventually all these old academic codes got ported into Python. And if you, if you go to scikit-learn and you, look inside the guts of what S the SVM code is doing. It's the same code I used at eBay. But back then, there was, you know, we had to, you know, so it's, you know, it eventually ended up uh, uh, as a, a Python to C-level call, and the libraries are now integrated in. But, but the key to doing this is that you have to go and find what's, you know, what are the researchers doing? What's really state-of-the-art right now? But also, what's accessible? What can you reasonably get into production in a reasonable amount of time? And that you know, today, I think it's as true today as it was back then, but just now there's just a lot more stuff. You know, back then it was C code that you had to integrate into Ruby and Python. Today, you know, it's, it's a pre-trained neural network or, you know, you go on GitHub and you find some neural network that someone has written and you try to integrate it and test it on your data and see if you can get it working. Uh, so I, I think the, the, the key now is there's just so much more. There's just so many more options uh, and so many more problems that you can solve. Any any other examples of a yeah, maybe one more example of a problem you solved that was really interesting to you, and then maybe one that you're wrestling with right now that you think is going to be pretty difficult, but may have a breakthrough in the near future that you're excited about. Well, the the big problem, the the, the one I, I sort of got a lot of credit for was demand media, and demand media is the first billion dollar IPO since Google, and this was the real magic of how you could use this machine learning technology is that we essentially figured out a way to predict traffic on Google. So I don't know if you remember a site called eHow.com. It used to be a pretty popular Yeah, site. I remember eHow. Now, yep, yep. yeah, eHow was very big. How did eHow get so big? Now, how did eHow get so much traffic? Well, it, it got so much traffic because we were able to figure out what articles to write before we, and how much traffic they would get and how many clicks they would get before we wrote them. So we had a title. It was a very famous, well, it was famous back then, you know, 2010, there was an article in Wired Magazine called The Answer Factory. And there described this algorithm that Demand Media put together where they could create titles. They have very famous, there was a patent, a Demand Media patent on this, where they would create titles and these titles could then be, from, from the title, you could predict how much traffic you would get on Google. And from there, you could predict your revenue. And that allowed them to amortize their content. So in other words, from an accounting perspective, something that's an, that typically looks like an expense, paying someone to write content, becomes an asset because it has long-term value. That's amazing. And, How and accurate was that the was prediction, all, by the way? Well, we were able to increase revenue by 500% and become a billion-dollar IPO. It was, it was amazingly accurate. It, it worked perfectly, <laughs> you know, in terms of – and, of course, what happened is that uh, 
Google went, of course, this, this totally freaked Google out. They, uh, and I have a story I talk about, you know, they, they don't like to talk. I, I tell you, look, Google changed CEOs. Well, so if they did it themselves, that's okay. But if someone else does it, then, oh, that's bad. It's like, well, you know, we actually, it's like I actually, the casino, you know? Well, of course, that's exactly what we did, you know? And, and you know, uh, you know, Google changed CEOs. And uh, after they changed CEOs, they introduced Panda. And Panda and Penguin were the big changes. And so the machine learning was essentially responsible for that. So, yeah, yeah, we all, you know, at the time, uh, it, was, it was great at the time. It was a huge success. Now, I, I have my own, uh, you know, I, you know I, I would have done it strategically a little different. I would have grown a little slower. You know, there are these problems with the startup when there's grow at all costs, grow at all costs. And, you know, it turns out that Google, they, they never imagined that Google would turn them off. Well, why would Google turn us off? We're generating all this AdSense revenue for them. Well, yeah, but you're also in, you're also in seven of 10. Your, your results are in seven of 10 of every Google's long-term, long-tail searches. That you, you've basically taken over the entire search engine. So that was a huge uh, deal back in 2011 or so. And that was one of the biggest successes we had to show that this technology really works. You can really do this. Yeah, and, and that was pre-AI. That was just using vanilla machine learning. So today, using natural language processing, you know, you, the, the technology is far more sophisticated. You can do all sorts of things. And you know, we, we have a client now. Right. I have a client. I've I've been working with, and it's been challenging. I, I won't say who they are. You know, it's challenging to get them to move to AI. You know, the CTO wants, so this is now the other side of the equation. Where, where does it get hard? Where does it get hard? It, it gets hard when you're in a large organization. Your CTO wants to do it. You know, company wants, he, he wants to do AI. You know, you know him very well. But, you know, you have the, you know, your field commanders. You know, a big company isn't run by the CTO. You know, he, he has to delegate to uh, VPs, you know, and project managers. And, and the problem you have in doing anything that's new and innovative, because remember, Demand Media was a startup. It was a startup. Any big company trying to do something new, you realize that you're trying to make project, you have to propose a project and it has to be, so, you know, you have to approve a project and it has to be available for your budget. So people inside the organization have to want to do this. And the problem is whenever you propose something new, it's not obvious. You know, it's the, it seems crazy when people say to you, that's a crazy idea or you're crazy. What they're saying to you is that, well, that just isn't obvious to me. Why would we do that? That's not obvious. And that's, and they won't well, do it's it. Not only it's, that, not it's the politics inside of organizations. So if like, let's say you have two departments and you're approaching one department and wanting to do this AI thing, you know, I would, I, I could feel threatened. Like, what if this thing succeeds and they blow us out of the water? We're going to be in trouble and lose our jobs because all of a sudden they'll be like the darling of the company and we'll be the also ran. So I, I bet you that yeah, there's had, a lot we, going on. We, the deep six we've had that problem too as a consultant. And we had a problem with one of our large clients where one of the PMs in the company was basically saying that we don't know what we're doing and he wants to come in and wants to, you know, we need to do it this way and not that way. And, and my, my answer, I tried to explain to this guy, guys, you know, we're consultants. Our job is to support you. Our job is to help you. It's not our job to compete with you. We're going to build this project. We're going to build this product, and then we're going to go away. And we're going to work on another product with another company. We're not threatening you. We're trying to help you. So people yeah. have a goofy understanding. You know, they, they don't see it that way. You know, our job as a consultant is to help everyone be a winner. We want everyone to succeed. We want all of our clients to succeed, and we want everyone inside the organization to look like a hero. We have no vested interest other than just doing a good job. But even at that level, yeah. there are people who just are not able to make that transition. They, they have this, you know, they're pathologically competitive in a way that is damaging to their own company. 
understand. You know, because they, you know, they yeah. have, but, but the real challenge, I think, is, you know, and that, that happens. And when that happens, you know, I mean, look, you know, that, that's, th- those are just things that happen everywhere in society. You know, every, org- every group has those guys in it. There's always somebody in the group is, you know. But I, I think more challenging is just that people, you know, they just don't see it. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to take the risk. You know, you, you know, and, and I, those are all challenges that big companies have. And we try to come in at a very senior level and try to manage that. Of course, you know, you, it, it's not at all, um, it's not at all easy. And it's a good reason why, you know, Silicon Valley exists. You know, there's no fundamental, you know, there's no technical reason why it's not a money reason that companies can't innovate. They, you know, they, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's much more personal and human than I think it is technical. So right now, what do you think is possible with AI and what's fantasy? And then the same answer five years from now. So, yeah, I, I, I what's possible with AI versus what's possible with people in organizations? I mean, there's a lot we can do with AI. I, I, I have a client now. I, if I could, if I were running things, so to say, you know, we could probably eliminate two thirds of the staff with what they're doing. It's this thing called robotic process automation. And the, the idea that there are all these people working in white collar jobs that really aren't doing creative, innovative work. They're doing repetitive work, which probably could be automated to, you know, even if you could automate 50% of it, that would eliminate half the jobs. And I, and I think that the, the main barrier to that is exactly what you said. It's the, it's the, the human dra- dra- the humans that are, that are stopping this from happening, but you know, it will happen, you know, whether it will either happen inside companies or new companies will form, will form with lower margins because they, they, you know, if, if I only have a hundred staff and you have a thousand, I'm going to kill you. There's no way you can defend against me because my margins are so much lower. You're, you're going to die. It may take me 10 years, but eventually you're going to die. So I think we're going to see a lot of companies that rely exclusively on repetitive white collar labor. I think those companies are going to die. Now, will it take five years, maybe 10, you know, okay. five years from now, you know, it's, it's hard to predict the future. I, I would say that I mean, I think that's where we're going to be five years from now is a lot of these white collar jobs are going to be severely threatened. And that, that's across the board, accounting, legal, you know, research, things like this. Right. Uh, because the, what we're seeing now in terms of how natural language processing is evolving, we've already seen it in object detection. But the way natural language processing is evolving, we're going to see huge changes. So I, I think we're seeing okay. we're going to see a huge disruption in the industry um, to, to the way in which Amazon has disrupted the entire retail industry. Right. Well, very good. And, you know, the last, uh, last item I wanted to ask you, because you know, we're kind of running out of time, who or what makes a good client for you? And you know, if you can give some characteristics and then how to uh, sure, kind of sure. get in touch with you if they're listening. Sure. We had a great client in, in uh, Eastern Europe last year. Interesting uh, group of guys uh, who were, they have a big company, kind of like the GoDaddy of Europe. And they knew that they had to become an AI company. They said, we know we have to do this. So they were taking classes at the Fast AI group here in uh, San Francisco, you know, all, all these free online classes. They had staff, and what they were working on are experimental projects. What kind of things can we do with AI right now that we can take existing technology and build products and get them to our customers? In this case, for example, they knew how to market really, really well to teenagers. So they wanted to make products like, can we make a cartoon caricature? Can we take a picture and turn it into a caricature? That would be the kind of product a teenager would buy. Or there's a product at Facebook where you, you, you take a video of yourself and you colorize the hair. And so now you can talk to someone, but while you're talking to them on video chat, you have blue hair. That, those are great. Those are AI products. And they wanted to investigate those products. They wanted to try to build them. They had a staff engineer 
who was working, and we worked very closely together. Uh, and it was all remote. It was all remote. You know, we just talked on Slack and on Zoom, you know, once a week. We talk on Slack every day, and we'd have a meeting on Zoom once a week. And that was a great client because I think that they learned a lot about how AI works, what's doable and what isn't, because they were w- willing to just jump in and get their feet wet. And they had the right mindset that we want to take existing research and turn it into products. You know, how can we, and they understood how to do that. And we were able to help them understand, you know, how to really, um, how to really do it. You know, what does it really take to do it? How do you evaluate it? What does it really mean? And they had a, it was a very, you know, it was a successful engagement. I think everybody was happy at the end of it. So those are the kind of clients that are the best. Companies that understand we need to become AI companies. We know that we have to build products. And we know that we have to, and we just can't keep building products the same way we've been building them. So we want to try to build new kind of products. We want to take research and turn it into development. And we're looking for someone to help us do that. And we're going to engage with them. You know, we're not just going to give you some data and hand it off to you and tell you to build something. We're going to work with you and engage with you. And we're going to, you know, really try to do this. And those are the best kind of clients. And they can reach us, you know, send us an email, uh, charles at calculationconsulting.com. You know, as I say, you know, it's kind of like the old... Uh, I just talk to Chuck, you know, just send Charles at calculationconsulting.com, send me an email, and we can get started. Well, very good. Charles, I, I see you're super passionate about this and knowledgeable, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Hey, you know, I, uh, I appreciate you. You know, I've spent my whole life in this space, and it's just mm-hmm. a really exciting time to be able to help people uh, really take advantage of it, and that's all we want to do, and that, that's what we're 100% focused on. So I really right, appreciate great. Hold the on time. A second. And, uh, you have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.